who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Wander with us into a world of magic. Do you lack magic? Where old stories take on a new life and the world is teeming with possibilities. Well, for the last time, we're not kissing, Fritz. Join Jenny and Madeline in this fantastical audio drama as they journey into the stories you grew up with. Okay, Gown. Let's do this. And reinvent fairy tales with a feminist twist. Ready for your next adventure? Then we'll see you soon in the forest of feminist fairy tales. are never going to believe this, but my name is Sarah Century. I am one of the hosts of Bitches on Comics, and yet, not the only host, just one among many. I like that we're never going to believe it. Uh, you'll also <laughs> never believe that I'm S.E. Fleenor, another host, one of many. And I am delighted <laughs> to be here today with, of course, the lovely Sarah, but also our awesome guest, Grace Ellis. Grace, welcome to the pod. Oh my god, I can't believe I'm here. This is great. We did it! Yeah, we made it. Oh my god. <laughs> we made it happen. I'm so excited. I'm so, so excited. I'm like, good point. This rules, actually. Yeah. <laughs> this this total I this rules for me too. This is great. I could not be more excited to have yeah. this conversation. Yay. Wow. This is the enthusiasm I needed today, y'all. This is <laughs> this is doing it for me. So, Grace, tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, just for listeners who who might not know you. Okay, my name is Grace Ellis, as previously stated. Uh, <laughs> I write comics. Uh, my first comic was Lumberjanes, which I co-wrote with N.D. Stevenson. Moonstruck from Image Comics. Cute little Lois Lane middle grade book. And now Flung Out of Space, inspired by the indecent adventures of Patricia Highsmith. Hooray. I didn't even know about the Lois Lane one. I love Lois nobody, Lane. Nobody knows about the Lois what? Lane one. It's like, it's like a middle grade book. It's, I love it. I think it's great. I mean, I thought that DC Superhero Girls was really good. So I think I'm down with middle grade fair. So I'm, I'm going to have to check it out. That's one of my favorite characters of all time. So, Oh, my God. I would honestly, I would love to get into some Lois stuff if you, if you want. Because yeah, I, I, please. I, I'm <laughs> I just got so excited that somebody said those words out loud to me. <laughs> I was like, oh, we're going to talk about Lois? Yeah. So why do you think that Lois is the greatest character in all of fiction? <laughs> well, I, no, I honestly, I do have an opinion on that. <laughs> yeah, I would love to hear it. So Lois Lane is a human person with no powers, except like the power mm-hmm. of being the world's greatest journalist. 
not a superpower necessarily. But she has to be so incredible as just a normal human person that she is Superman's hero. Yes. I think that's awesome. That's so cool. What an awesome idea. That is exactly why I love Lois, because it's always, well, what does this character do for them? You know, supporting cast, you're like, what is this character? And it's like, Superman doesn't really exist after a certain point, I think, without Lois Lane. You know, he has his parents who have this kind of what I consider to be a somewhat naive view of the world, although often on point, but somewhat naive. And then you have Lois Lane who sees the world exactly as it is and still is brave enough to love the world for all of its flaws, right? And I think that that is really beautiful. I'm going to cry. <laughs> yeah, I That's love beautiful. her. <laughs> like, she is so great. We're going to have to play this for DC Comics. I know. Offer her up as tribute to Lois Lane, proof that she deserves her own ongoing title. Just a Lois book. That's and it. I mean, if book. if Grace and Sarah co-write it, like what? Uh, that's not too bad, you know. Oh, listen, Ooh, call me yeah. anytime because I have thoughts, feelings, ideas, more things. I'm ready. Yes, ideas yes, and more things. <laughs> 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 yeah. So immediately, bestie, because we have a wonderful same favorite character. But I am curious, too, to know about some of your other work because Lumberjanes is a huge deal. (laughs) Oh, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, and it's one of those comics that I was really happy, I think, because I've been reading comics for a really long time. And there has been whole eras, I think, in the recent past where comics that are kind of aimed towards young adults were not that popular. Like, I couldn't find any anywhere. Like, not a lot of people were making them. And that's completely changed. Like, the entire landscape of comics has changed. That's the stuff that's selling really, really well right now a lot of the times. So I think that there's just something really interesting about that and kind of how Lumberjanes, I remember being one of the comics that came out where I was like, oh, I could give this to, you know, my niece. I could give this to, you know, a number of people who I was otherwise kind of struggling to find something for, you know? Yeah. Well, I think I think that Lumberjanes just came out at exactly the right time, you know, all the Raina Telgemeier books were starting to foam up this small but quickly massive audience for young girls specifically. And now, of course, the entire New York Times bestseller list is for comics is like all kids' books, which mm-hmm. is just so wild and would not have been the case at all when Lumberjanes came out originally. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It's been it's been such a trip to be a part of. I have so many fond things to say about Lumberjanes. It's a really special book, and the people who made it are all really special. Mm-hmm. Me not included, but the others <laughs> the others are all very special. I They're think all good, we can go ahead people. and include you in that too. <laughs> not, well, I kind of set you up to say that, but <laughs> sure. <laughs> the compliment I was fishing for, right? But I mean, oh wow. <laughs> The co-creator of Lumberjanes is huge. And as you said, it was kind of in this moment where I just immediately started seeing so much other stuff. And we live in a better world because of that. So I think that that's awesome. I agree. Yeah, everyone on Lumberjanes absolutely rules. I mean, both the creative team and the characters. I'm like, a, I love Lumberjanes. Why don't I get to go to a magical summer camp? Like, I'm pretty upset about that, if I'm going to be honest. I'm curious, what was it like collaborating and sort of co-writing Lumberjanes? 
Well, it was the first time I'd ever co-written anything. And ND was living in LA at the time, I believe. And I live in Ohio and was living in Ohio then. So really the biggest challenge was time zones because all of the creative work was so chill. ND is just like an unbelievable creative powerhouse, which I mean, if you've seen anything uh, that they've done, that should be very apparent. So it was it was a genuine pleasure to work on it. As someone who doesn't do any art at all, it's always going to be very collaborative. That's just kind of built in for me. Since this was my first book, it was a, a really good introduction to many, many types of collaboration. It was great. I'd redo it in a heartbeat. That's the dream, right? Like to walk away from a collaboration and be like, yeah, hell yeah, I'd do it again. Yeah, for sure. That's so great. I saw in an interview with Book Riot, I believe, that you really enjoy characters who transform. And so the bear woman was someone you mentioned from Lumberjanes. <laughs> and the bear woman is the coolest. Yeah. So I just wanted to hear about, like, where did she come from for you? And what is it that you love about her? Okay, well, here's the thing, which is that I didn't put together that I kind of gravitate toward characters that physically transform until someone pointed it out to me. And I, it sent me into like a real spiral of like, what else <laughs> am I putting in these books that I didn't even realize? I'm like really like exposing myself psychologically in some way, I think. <laughs> I think all writers do. And that's oh, yeah. like, it's one of the hard things to accept is like, yeah, my good and my bad is going to end up on the page. That's why editing is helpful. And yeah, suddenly you find yourself working with the same theme or the same type of character. And it's like, damn, do I need to go talk to a therapist about this? Exactly, like, exactly. And then someone points it out to you and it's just like, oh, no, I feel like I feel like I'm being read right now. <laughs> I love to be like reading one of my stories and be like, you know what? I think this is allegorical. <laughs> <laughs> One of your own stories. <laughs> yeah, I love it because it just cracks me up. I feel like I write a lot of stories that to me, I read them back and I'm like, yeah, that's clearly allegorical. This is about, you know, breakup anxiety or like, you know, any number of things. I wrote one the other day and I was like, this is just the pandemic. Like, this is exactly the pandemic. But it was very much not that. <laughs> like, obviously, we're using all of these metaphors. But it does make me excited. You're saying that this causes you kind of anxiety to see it, which I think is, uh, yeah, different than me, I guess. <laughs> I'm like, this is fun. This is almost like therapy, kind of. Well, it's happening like a thousand times more now because Flung Out of Space, this new one, it has a Ooh, lot yeah. of like, intentional themes in it. But it also has a lot of unintentional themes. And all of these interviewers are pointing them out to me. And I don't have good answers because I didn't realize they were in there. You're like, oh, no, I didn't think about that one yet. Hang on. Right. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, you talked a little bit about Flung Out of Space, which we're going to obviously like dig into hardcore and, and talk mm -hmm. about the themes and all those pieces. But I'm, I'm noticing that, you know, you've got some middle grade work, you've got some teen work, and then Flung Out of Space is, you know, definitely mature. Not a teen book. <laughs> Not a teen book. So I'm curious, like, what do you like about writing for different audiences? And why do you think you're drawn to that? Well, Flying Out of Space is definitely not a teen book. I had a, a librarian friend take a look at it. And I was like, listen, all of the swearing is censored out and the, the sex scene is only implied. So maybe it is okay. And she was like, well, <laughs> someone is smoking on the cover. So no, it's not. She said like 16 plus is probably like an acceptable age range for it. Man, I just don't know. I 
I think that this is a very reasonable question, but I couldn't tell you what drew me to do an adult book now, except that I just felt like I was ready to do an adult book. I kind of approach all of them the same way. Like, for example, that Lois Lane book that we were talking about before. If DC had approached me with an opportunity to do an adult Lois Lane book, I probably would have written, obviously not this exact story, but like something similar, you know, similar themes and similar ideas. So I think that I just think about telling a good story first, and I am notoriously horrendous at figuring out what the right audience is for it age-wise. Um, I just like have no idea what anything is going to be appropriate for anyone. <laughs> Who knows? It's, it's a comic, and if it seems like you like it, then you like it. Whenever I was a kid, I was reading like Vertigo and stuff. Oh, right. So for I, sure. I'm, yeah. When I, I was, right? right. When I was a kid, I was like, you know what sounds fun? Gulliver's Travels. Yeah. Oh, you well, know? see. <laughs> or, I mean, there is stuff that is in the realm of just being a general classic or something where I read back. Like, I used to watch classic movies all of the time. And it's like, well, this is where I first watched, like, you know, lesbian vampires. And right. Stuff, right. So. <laughs> so there's some stuff in classic movies. I think people just kind of assume that it's going to be this PG 13 kind of realm. But also, I think that that's the same with comics. Comics for a long time got very adult. Yes. <laughs> like, and still are. But like now there's kind of a clearer separation, I guess. I don't know. I kind of was just going to concur that I feel the same way where I'm like, I can see why you wouldn't want your kid to read this, I guess. And then I'm like, but whenever I was a kid, <laughs> I was reading some wild stuff, I got to say. Right. I, I just have to wonder how much of like the age demarcation is marketing and how much of it is like a genuine concern for young people. I mean, right. especially when we're talking about LGBTQ issues, mm -hmm. um, it becomes a huge question. One that uh, Pat in your book even has to grapple with. Right, for sure. Lumberjanes won a couple Eisners, and the Eisners that it won were for teen book. Lumberjanes is, in my mind, definitely not a teen book. I think if you're a teenager reading that, you're going to think it's for babies, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think, and I mean, even Moonstruck, there's not really anything that I would consider like graphic content in it, but it gets shelved all over the place, you know? So I, I don't know. I kind of raise an eyebrow at all age demarcations on comics in general. I mean, obviously, I don't want kids to read like super violent or super sexy stuff. That's a different conversation. But in general, <laughs> yeah. you know. Yeah, I always think it's so interesting the way that, that books are categorized because I'm with you. Like sometimes I don't even realize like with uh, narrative books, the lines feel a little bit clearer typically where I feel like I know when I'm reading something that's YA by and large. But then with graphic novels, I'm just like, what? It's just a cute story that I fucking love. Like, why do why don't I get it? But I remember talking to Preeti about her work with different audiences. She wrote uh, the Spider-Man journals that go with the movies. And I remember she said something really interesting about trying to think about what the people who were reading the book, so in, in that case, like middle grade, I believe, what their experiences were and what they were worried about. So not trying to give them adult worries or not trying to view them through an adult lens, but really view them for who they are and to represent that through the characters with similar ages. And I guess that's like the real question behind the, the question I asked, which is like less about like, yeah, marketing and categories and what shelf you go on and more about how do you resonate with, with young people as, you know, I mean, I'm assuming you're not, 12. Correct. I could be wrong, but I'm assuming <laughs> you're not 12. So how do you tap into that voice, I guess, is the better question. Well, I think that 
when we were coming up with the concept of lumberjanes, I came across this survey that said that for almost every kid, their all-time favorite memory, all-time favorite experience was something that didn't involve their parents at all. That was just them like being their own person out in the world with some friends, whether that was at a summer camp, for example, or like riding your bike to the library or, you know, just something where like you were the person in charge. So I think that that was, that was the real, the real impetus for that one. And I think that that's honestly kind of the thing that's kept me going through for that age group is thinking about like, becoming your own person, like an autonomous person in the world who's making their own decisions and trying to figure out how to be a a person more than anything else. Um, And that, I mean, that's something that I understand even as an adult. You know, I came out as a lesbian when I was 21. So thinking back on that experience of like figuring out what that meant and how to be my own person in that way, that's not that hard to translate into, you know, a little 12 year old who's like, ah, I'm going to ride my bike to the ice cream stand, which happens in Lois, you know? No, I, I love that. I love that. And and as you were talking, I was making the same connections you were with coming out, you know, where I was like, yeah, I came out as non-binary later in life. And yeah, I guess bye too. Um, but, you know, it, it's I'm like, wait, when did I come out? Who knows? And I think it's it's exciting to think about how, even though there may be, let's say, age-appropriate ways to grapple with these themes, that does still feel like a theme in Flung Out of Space, right? Like it's still a theme of finding oneself, of independence, especially in the era Pat Highsmith is in. I think it's just really interesting and and how maybe that's why these graphic novels like feel sort of all ages in a way where it feels like, yeah, we can all relate to, you know, the experience of Lumberjanes of just like a summer you never want to end, except they magically get to have a summer that never freaking ends. (laughs) So mad about it. I want it so bad in my life. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, that's neat. That's neat. I like that a lot. Uh, You know, thinking about Moonstruck, I also read in the Book Riot interview, you talked about how you were excited for Moonstruck to add to the canon of queer stories in it being one that is about more than coming out. And I would love to just hear more about why you think that narrative is is so important. Okay, I'm so excited for this question because this is something I've been thinking about quite a bit lately. I want to preface this. Of course, we still need coming out stories. I'm not suggesting that we stop writing coming out stories. Definitely keep writing coming out stories. Preface accepted. (laughs) Thank you. Okay, excellent. So here's my main thing, which is I think that coming out is, of course, like a very pivotal experience. It's very like particular to LGBTQ people. It's important. And then there's the rest of your life that comes after that. The big coming out moment sort of happens where like you tell your family and you tell your friends. And then there's just like a lot after that where you continue to be a person, you continue to exist in a community. And I think that that's what I'm more interested in exploring. This is a very half-baked thought that I actually kind of thought of like three days ago. So please feel free to jump in and tell me that I am an idiot or whatever. But I kind of started thinking about coming out stories as sort of like rom-coms in the way that they're comforting and formulaic. You have like your character who is like freshly realized that they're gay and they're worried that their parents aren't going to accept them. They're usually, in this version, they're teenagers, um, but they could be any age. They're worried their parents aren't going to accept them. So there's this looming cloud of homophobia. The stakes are, 
they feel very high, even if we don't spell them out necessarily. Um, but we as the audience can feel pretty secure in knowing based on the type of movie this is that it will be okay in the end and that their parents will accept them. So it's a way of, you know, creating stakes for this character without actually like exploring the cost of homophobia. And I, I'm very biased in this. I had a very fraught, very bad coming out. So when I see these stories, I just feel annoyed mostly. Not that I don't like them. I love, I love the fantasy of them, but it does feel like a fantasy to me, even if they are very comforting and important in a lot of ways. That's how I feel about coming out stories now. What do you think? There's so, so many coming out stories, right? And of course, this is another thing where we have to be like, we are not saying stop doing that. There's always going to be a thing. It is a pivotal part of people's lives. But for a lot of people, it's a lot more ongoing, right? We were talking actually about, I think, like, Blue is the Warmest Color, which is like a complicated coming out story, the comic, right? Yeah. So that one, I feel like there was a lot of homophobia, and the cost of homophobia is on the page. It is very rare for that to be the case yes. because most of the time it really is a dismissal, I think is what you're saying. I don't want to paraphrase you. No, no, no. <laughs> like, I think that's right. Because it is saying that what happens after, well, that's not as important kind of in a way. But I want to hear about old queer people. You know, I'm 39. I want to hear about people who are older and younger than me, right? Like, and my same age. But you just want to see a little bit more maybe age diversity. I think that you want to see more story diversity. There's people who come out fairly early and it's less of a thing for them. I just think that it does kind of limit things in a way. I would agree with you. Oh, for sure. And I, as you were talking, I started thinking about Grace and Frankie, which is essentially a coming out story too. Right. And how completely excellent Grace and Frankie is because the coming out is the first thing that happens. And then the rest of it is like the fallout. And we meet these guys. It's like full, flawed humans. It's great. Right. And people really ate it up, too. That was a show that did really well. And I think that I the more the more kinds of queer narratives that we see, I think the more it's obvious that that's what everybody wants. Because, you know, there's some people who it's like trigger warning. I don't want to see like a sad, horrible ending. Like, I don't want the lesbian to die. You know, like all right. of that kind of stuff. I think that that's very fair. But on the other hand, I do think that maybe just don't watch that one, right? Because right. now at this point, there's more, not that there's enough, but there's more queer narratives. Whenever I was a kid, it was only the lesbian dies, right? Right, <laughs> so, right. I know. So I, it's kind of changed. I totally agree with you. I think that more is the answer. Just yeah, more. Stuff. More stuff. <laughs> just keep going. More stuff. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. 
And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Wander with us into a world of magic. Join Jenny and Madeline in this fantastical audio drama as they journey into the stories you grew up with and reinvent fairy tales with a feminist twist. We'll see you soon in the forest of feminist fairy tales. Well, I think that you both hit on sort of two pieces that are what occur to me when we talk about this, which is coming out is not really all sunshine and roses. And I don't mean that as in like everybody gets a good story. I think we're aware that not everybody gets a good coming out story. But I also think it's not something everyone does. Coming out is, as much as it can be an act of liberation, it is also an oppression. Because straight people don't have to go, oh, hey, I'm straight. Just, I want you to know I'm straight. Oh, I'm I'm cisgender. I want you to know I'm cisgender. No one, sometimes you see people doing little TikTok videos and I'm like, I hate you. Um, yeah. But yeah. Like, by and large, <laughs> nobody's actually coming out that way because they don't have to. The, the assumption is the default of, Sis and Het. And actually, in an episode that's coming out in early May, Jay Edidin said that, you know, he was he was sick of like having to do that that way, having to have everyone have this like, I have to come out and I'm very gay. And that really resonated with me because I think it's something that is very white. I think coming out is it happens for a lot of people of color as well, but it is really integral to the white queer narrative. I think it's something very middle class and um, upper class where there's an expectation that you have to have this conversation with your parents, with your family, with your teacher, with everybody, because otherwise, how will they really know you? And I don't think that's the case for everyone in the LGBTQ communities that I'm part of or that I've seen. And so it becomes this compulsory thing that is a burden put on people of I can remember feeling like, well, no one knows me if they don't know this part. And today I don't really feel that as much. As much as like, yeah, it sucks to be misgendered. I'm like, eh, do I care about you? I do not. So go ahead and misgender me. It's fine. Um, so I think that's a piece of it that I think about. And then the other piece that I, I heard both of you talking about a little bit, and I think is an amazing segue into talking about Flung Out of Space, is that in addition to sort of this, I guess, almost infantilizing or stuck eternally in sort of what's considered a youth topic of coming out, even though Grace and Frankie is a great example of not being youth. But, you know, that if you want to sell an LGBTQ novel, what do you need to make it? YA, because LGBTQ issues are YA issues. That sort of stuck in that infantilization is a problem. But then also this need for all LGBTQ stories and characters to be perfect. These are good people. <laughs> They're doing a good job. They're making the world better. This is a great segue. You're right. Well, I was yes. laughing. <laughs> like, flung out of space is like that. I think that's part of why I fucking love it. Because it's this unflinching examination of a real dirtbag. Oh, you she's know? such and a dirtbag. Like, but not always in a fun way. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And this hugely important cultural icon for LGBTQ people. Like, both at the same time. 
it's rendered so beautifully in this comic. And that is part of what I wanted to talk about today, which is like, why do we need these realistic portrayals of these historical figures who are queer? And why should we be so unflinching in our examinations of them? Well, okay. I don't want to dance around it. So Patricia Highsmith is a, she's a dirtbag in a fun way, but she's also a dirtbag in a bad, bad way in that she's very anti-Semitic, racist, misogynistic in a way that's really confusing. That is real. They're in her diaries. People have done interviews about it. She's a bad, a bad person. Um, but she's also an unbelievably important figure in LGBT history. She wrote The Price of Salt, which became Carol, which is like kind of a foundational lesbian text, often called like the first gay book with um, a happy ending because neither of them die and they end up together, um, which is still, still pretty, pretty unique. I think it's important to tell these stories because that really happened. And whether we like it or not, she has had a huge influence over us and over our culture. And I think that if we're going to take an honest look at our culture, we need to know honest facts about it. And the fact of the matter is this person who did some incredibly, genuinely heroic things was also not a hero in any way, you know? And I think that it's it's up to each individual person to make a determination of what that means for them personally. I would never tell anyone how to feel about it. Yeah, a Highsmith, just a demon. <laughs> yeah, she's a demon. I think about her a lot, actually, because she's, yeah, I mean, definitely a brilliant writer. There's so much work that goes into it. The way that her novels play out, it makes me understand how a bad person could write them. Yeah, right. Well, that's, well, that's, that's the thing, though, too. The, the other reason we have to, like, deal with this regarding her, because, like, the fact that she's a terrible person is what, made her capable of writing a lot of these books. Most of her books are about criminals who do murders. Um, and they're from the point of view of the criminal doing the murder. And there's cruel relationship politics in it too, I right. think, oh, with all God. of them, right? Yes. So it's not only are they mostly killing people, but there's a lot of murdering your wife. Like there is a lot of, you know, jealous obsession, you know, all of those kind of things. Right. Like think about, um, I have not read this, but I have seen the movie like Gone Girl. We see this woman being terrible and we're right there with her as she's doing all of these terrible things and we're able to understand and see what she's doing, you know, and that's that's a very high Smithian idea. We see the like mental illness playing out in real time. Mm -hmm. And as much as I look at Patricia Highsmith and I'm like, wow, what a piece of shit. Like, I don't like anything that you say. I hate all of your interviews. It's also kind of this thing where it's I'm a lesbian writer. I'm sitting at my desk, not looking entirely unlike Patricia Highsmith. Right. <laughs> and so I'm kind of just like, it really is kind of like the evil side or something where you kind of have to grapple with, you know, we talk about the evil lesbian stereotype and stuff like that. And I'm just like, well, maybe sometimes we should look at that stereotype and, you know, examine it within ourselves as much as it's a bad stereotype and it truly did, you know, have sway over a lot of how people viewed lesbians for a long time, you also have to be like, yeah, but maybe sometimes I am kind of mean or something, you know, like I feel that when I read Patricia Highsmith, it's almost like, I don't want to say like a mirror, but you are looking at something where you go, oh, I can see how I could be a monster. You know, I could see how I could be 
just a terrible human being. And maybe I should grapple with stuff like that. Because if you don't, then maybe you become the Patricia Highsmith or something. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly it. And I think that she would be so excited to hear you say that because... Oh my God. I mean, that's that's her whole thing, you know, which is like, I'm just saying what we're all thinking in terms of doing murders. Yeah, <laughs> the murders. And then it's like, to me, the thing that always gets me almost even more than the murder is just kind of the casual cruelty. I yeah. think that she is so brilliant at portraying in this way that makes you be like, oh, no, right? (laughs) You're terrifying. (laughs) Oh, this is like too well rendered. Oh, Pat. (laughs) And I think that this is something that comes across in the graphic novel is that you get the feeling that every bit of cruelty that she puts out to the world, she does to herself first in a way, right? Not not to excuse it. It's not an excuse, but it's definitely why I think those scenes are so important where she's talking to her therapists more than one because she's super inappropriate. (laughs) She's actually even more inappropriate in real life. It was too wild to even put in the book how inappropriate she was. Yeah. Anyway. wow. Not surprised, sadly. But, you know, those scenes, I think, portrayed a lot of how much she really was not just cruel to the world, you know, cruel always to herself first, maybe. Yeah, I think that she had an obsession with guilt more than anything. Oh, God, yeah. She was really obsessed with the book Crime and Punishment. Mm. And I'm like, we've all dated one, right? Right. (laughs) It was like like super like guilt. And you're like, you don't really have to be guilty. And they're like, guilt, though. And I'm just like, oh. Right, right. (laughs) Yeah. Patricia Highsmith is a trip. And whenever you think about her, I always end up going down all of these rabbit holes. And I don't, once again, don't think that excuses her general existence. I don't think that she really helps people. And I think that artists maybe have some responsibility to sometimes help people. But I think too, that you look at her life and you go, well, I don't know. All of the people who are saying that they're nice to her in this book, they're not being nice to her. They just want to have sex with her. Yes. (laughs) yes. There's a lot of stuff (laughs) like that where you're just like, I mean, they're being nice, I guess, but they're not helping you out of the kindness of their heart. There's the guy who's very actively a nice guy to her, right? He's very pleasant, but I don't know that he's actually nice, you know? Exactly. So I was wondering what you think about that, because it's like she talks about her mom. She has these relationships with women that just can't possibly end well. But that's where she gets the majority, I think, of a lot of her affection. And then there's people who seem like they're trying to be affectionate in a positive way, but it just doesn't really come across like that to me. So I don't know. I was wondering what you think about that, because I think her relationships are very strange and how she interacts with other people, right? Yeah, I mean, it's so wild because it it just feels like she's being cruel for no reason a lot of the time. And she is, you know, like, for example, she sleeps with her agent's girlfriend and it feels like she's doing it for a reason. She's such a shame. But she's but she's not. She's not doing it for any reason. She just is doing it because she's mad at her agent, feels like she has to destroy her life for no reason other than I'm mad at you and I wish that my life were better. And to Sarah's point, she's also destroying her own life, right? Oh, like, yeah, right. Fucking your agent's partner is a real bad call. <laughs> right, exactly. There's no good outcome for any person in that one. So I think that she's so fascinating. Everything that she does is so interesting because, I mean, on one hand, you have like her bigotry, which I cannot understand and I'm sure that I will never understand. But she also has her like self-hatred 
and her just general hatred of anyone. And they, they're all connected to each other in this way that's just like a spider web and everyone's getting caught in it, especially Pat, you know? Mm. She's just, she's not having a good time. <laughs> you know yeah. what it reminds me of is uh, Sarah wrote this beautiful essay about the movie I Care A Lot and how yeah. it's such a beautiful advancement of the evil lesbian trope mm-hmm. because it's showing someone who really is evil and it has nothing to do with her sexuality. Yeah. And she gets to still be a lesbian. And, and I'm just feeling a lot of parallels here. So I didn't, I don't know, Sarah, did you want to, are you feeling any of those vibes? Yeah, I think that there's something specific to that, right? Where the evil lesbian pops up so often. <laughs> like we have our, you know, Mrs. Danvers. We have, you know, our vampire lesbians. There's there's just so many examples that I think even now people go, oh, we can't even get into that. Like, let's not even have a evil lesbian. And I'm like, well, it's so much worse not to ever have an evil lesbian, right? Because that definitely needs to exist still because I think that the commentary that we were offered in the past for the most part has been pretty shallow, a little bit basic and extremely bigoted. This applies directly to Patricia Highsmith where it's like, I would love to love this person unconditionally, you know, as much as you see that she really is in some ways looking for that, but you're also just like, I would love to just be able to pick up one of her books about the worst people who have ever lived (laughs) and never have to think about how that directly applied to her worldview, right? Right. But it's also like, we should look at that, I think. And I felt the same with I Care A Lot. Now, as we note, I don't think that her queerness has anything to do with her being evil. I do think homophobia plays a role in it. And we didn't get this far into Marla Grayson's backstory, and I care a lot. Um, But I think that I'm just reading this one comic, and I've read about her life many times, but you look at just this one comic, and the oppression that she's feeling is so stifling. And yes, part of it is like what she's doing to herself, but part of it is the time. And, uh, you know, what's expected of her. And I look at that stuff and I go, I, I don't know how I would deal with that because as bad and as rocky as my coming out was, I still feel that I was in the age of like lesbian vampires or camp, you know, or something. Whereas I look back at like, you know, the 50s, 60s, <laughs> like that time period. And yeah, people were still, you know, being, it was treated as a severe problem for people that they wanted to be cured of she wants to be cured and I've read that before about her and I um you know you find it really tragic again not to excuse it but that's the thing we wouldn't excuse it and I care a lot either I don't think I feel like it's okay to hold these people like fictional or otherwise accountable in a story and be like that is awful but you also have to examine you know how all of these different dynamics play a part in that yes totally I mean, I think it's it's not an excuse. It might be part of an explanation. Right. Have you read her diaries at all? Mm-mm. You should. You would love them. They are just oh, off the walls. Oh, my God. I would. She's so scandalous. Yeah. Uh, I would love it so much. She is like the worst kiss and teller. It's, it's very fun in that way. And a nightmare person, oh right? Because she's just like, <laughs> I like kiss this person and told. And then it's just like, and also... Like, fuck that person. Right, right. <laughs> just like, you're a nightmare. She's just 
trying to stay married to her husband or whatever. Yeah, exactly. You're the one. <laughs> you did the bad thing. Oh, that was that was what I wanted to tack on there. I think it's a combination of homophobia and then just plain old misogyny. Right. You know? So internalized with her, right? Right. Because right. she's awful to women. And I think a lot of her ex-lovers said that where they were like, I think she just like hated women, which is weird, but like did. <laughs> yeah, right. She like in her diaries writes about how she thinks women are just like stupid. And it's like, what are you, what are you talking about? I've met women who are lesbians who are totally misogynistic, right? Like misogyny is something that is so insidious that it affects us all. I know when I was like 15, I probably said horrible things about feminism or something, right? Because you're just, you're towing the party line. That's what everybody has told you. And then you start to put, you know, two and two together. But it's almost like some people never make it to that point, which is weird too, because to your point, you know, any kind of bigotry is like you you should be able to just think your way out of that. And it shouldn't be this like lifelong commitment for you, right. Patricia Highsmith. <sighs> Because, yeah, I just, it's wild to think of that. But then it's also like, yeah, misogyny was a huge deal. You always see it. And, you know, everything in your culture is encouraging it to some extent today as well. But I think, too, that there is narratives other than that. Whereas, I guess, I don't know, it seems like her mom was kind of rough, you know, like all of this stuff where you're like, well, maybe this and maybe this. Right. <laughs> but, yes. But in the end, it's somebody who's making not just bad decisions, but like kind of truly harmful decisions. Right. Yes. I mean, it's something that I really struggled with in writing this book is there needs to be some kind of an explanation for this person, you know? A person like this doesn't just happen randomly. Mm -hmm. You find the explanation and then you go, the explanation doesn't matter. You're still a bad person, exactly. right? Like right, that's, right. What's, that's what's interesting about this stuff, I think. Yeah, yes, I agree. I mean, it's like, is it is it her mom who just like tortured her psychologically? Is it just like being in this super hostile work environment all the time? It doesn't matter. doesn't matter. You suck and are so cruel to everyone you meet. But I mean, I think it's also important to point out that she was so charismatic and everyone was just like drawn to her endlessly. Yeah, you could not be. <laughs> right. I mean, a, a normal non-charismatic person, we would not be having this conversation because they would just be right. cool and everyone would cut them out of their lives. Yeah, we wouldn't be talking about any Tom Ripley's right now. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's the that's the the secret sauce in all of this is that she was yeah. like, I mean, she was beautiful before she destroyed her body with alcoholism and like could be so charming when she made a conscious decision to be charming that I mean women were just like obsessed with her like men constantly trying to marry her when she was younger you know it's it was wild it's so bizarre mm -hmm. I love her yeah <laughs> yeah interesting stuff and I was gonna ask too what's a book that you really enjoyed from Patricia Highsmith because I tend to enjoy her work. I definitely think that whenever it comes to the thriller genre, just kind of in its entirety, it almost doesn't exist. It's like her and Agatha Christie, who once that's like a whole can of worms, right? So you're just like, <laughs> there's a few people where you just go, oh, the whole genre basically got invented off of your work. Right. And that's kind of how it is with Patricia Highsmith, where you're just seeing her everywhere forever because, you know, everybody knows 
like once our culture understood what Tom Ripley was, we all knew, right? It was, oh, I've met that person. You know, like we all kind of, it tapped into something, I think, in a weird way. So we're still seeing it pop up in art. I feel like um, everyone in the genre has kind of been chasing her ever since she started writing these books. I mean, people didn't know what to do with her books when they Mm -hmm. were coming out originally because it's like, what? how do you even classify them? They just call them crime books. That's not really, that's a really big understatement. Like how Daphne du Maurier was put into romance yeah. where you're just like, what? Like, <laughs> yeah. this was like all about jealousy and obsession and like murder. and like- Right, that's like a kind of a like lowercase p pat response, you know? Like, yeah. That's yeah, it's a little overly simple. I do really like Strangers on a Train. I think it's... It comes up in the text a few times because that's what she's trying to sell, right? Right, right, right. So that was that was fun. I liked that. I think The Blunderer is really fun. It's about mm-hmm. a guy who's really bad at committing murder. Yeah. <laughs> and more guys that are really bad at committing yeah, murder. Right? Right? <laughs> what are what are yours? You you said beforehand that you that you really loved her her well, works. What what I'm beyond obsessed with carol oh i mean that yes obviously that goes without saying for sure sarah has a carol sweater every time i go out in public i'm just like why is that person like giving me the eye and then i'm just like oh you're literally wearing the most lesbian sweater um (laughs) like you could possibly it's like literally a neon flashing light obviously carol is amazing i love the movie version i love everything about it all of it is also something that's very tense, but it's almost like her most forgiving work in a lot of ways. As From what I've read, I haven't read all, I think she did like 26 novels. I haven't read every single one of them. But I'm going to say Strangers on the Train, even though like the first time you read it, you're like, oh, this is a ripoff of, oh, wait, all of these <laughs> things that actually ripped it off. <laughs> right. It, like it was a concept we were just waiting for someone to invent, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I think that Thomas Ripley, it's like it's worth the read just based on the fact that every movie hasn't quite nailed it. There's been a few movie versions of it. I'm so excited for the new one. Andrew Scott. Perfect. Isn't it going to be a TV series? Yes, I am so excited for that one. Oh, my God. I love Andrew Scott so much. I think he's perfectly cast. I'm stoked. That is going to be exciting. Yeah. And what a nightmare person, too, because you're just like, oh. But and once again, somebody like that character is so influential that you just owe it to yourself to read the book that it's based on, I think, because it's one of those things where it's like the first time I watched Double Indemnity and I was like, every movie makes sense now. (laughs) You see these um, pivotal moments in literature or film and you go, oh, that's what everybody is doing. For me, it's uh, watching the original series of Star Trek and being like, oh man, what a ripoff. And be like, oh my God, this is the first time this happened. <laughs> this is the first time they did this. Inter- totally. Everyone is referring to this moment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I haven't read anything of hers that I didn't like. I do also think that The Blunderer is really good. I think that that's one too where it's kind of, there's moments where Patricia Highsmith has this like terrifying self-awareness. Yeah. You know? yeah. And I think that The Blunderer just being bad at everything, I think is her pranking men essentially and being like, <laughs> look, you're not very good at this. But I also think that there's an admission of herself that she's like, I'm so emotional. I would be terrible at committing a murder. Yeah, I, think that's like, true. I would tell everybody about it like right away, you know. Um, I would brag about it, you know, like to my therapist or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) 
Honestly, yeah. Every time I read one of her books, I'm just like, this asshole like wrote this thing that was actually really valuable to me as a person. And I don't need her to be around <laughs> for me to enjoy it. Right. I would prefer her not to be around. But it makes it be complicated. And I think trying to think that through is kind of an ongoing thing. So I appreciate that you did this comic because... To me, it is a character. I have texted Essie and our other host, Monica, many times just being like, oh, yeah, I'm just writing about our least favorite lesbian or like, you know, whatever. I feel like we've all met a person that's like at least a little bit like Patricia Highsmith, probably not as brilliant in the way that she is brilliant. But you look at how our dynamics work, how queer circles work and how there is that need to be like, oh, well, she experienced homophobia, you know, like all of this. And it's like, yeah, but that doesn't excuse any of the shit that she's doing. And yeah, that's why I, I guess I just I found this book fascinating and beautiful. The art is incredible. Oh, it's unbelievable. And, yeah. you know, funny. It's also funny. You know, there's like a lot of good parts in this where you just kind of you're like, <laughs> this bitch, you know, like <laughs> you have those moments. And yeah, there was just something that I loved about how complex it is because it's reflecting an experience I've had reading this character like or reading this person's work and you know the characters that she writes because you're just like well it's all on the page she's really not lying to us right (laughs) right (laughs) yeah she's like here I am a dirtbag here's my dirtbagness yeah you know I I also when you were describing you know it being funny in turn and all these, these different pieces I also found myself so drawn to her struggles as a writer in how hard it was to get a book with queer women who don't die in the end. And I think a lot of people, I'm going to count myself among them, are still struggling to place books that have complicated LGBTQ representation in them. Because again, like we talked about a little bit earlier, there's so much pressure to create the perfect queer character to be the representation we've all been waiting for. And I really was surprised to find myself like, oh, this person is terrible. And I feel so much empathy for her in this this particular struggle around her her writing and around not being categorized the way she wants to be, uh, around fighting to become among the literary elite and then being knocked back down. Um, I thought that was really interesting and, and again, heartbreaking. Um, and again, more context. Again, nothing excuses her behavior. <laughs> I think we've all made that clear. Yes. Poor <laughs> people were like, listen, we're not saying it's okay. Right. But we are saying that it happened and it's important yes. that we at least note that. Exactly. And that that's a great segue to what I wanted to ask about, which is this balance of the fictional and the real in the story. Because it's not a biography, right? It's a fictionalization-ish. So I would love to know how did you decide to strike that balance? How did you decide to fictionalize? How does that balance show up? And yeah, anything else on that topic? Well, okay. So I read the Big Thick biography, one of them, and then both of them. Um, So I, I had all the facts rolling around in my head. And the way that I found was the best to condense them was to just tell as many people as I could this story. Like my hairdresser, my friends, a Lyft driver you know, anyone, anyone in the entire world who I could get to listen to this. And from doing that, it became clear. Such good practice. Right. That's it's so amazing. Like, what, what am I condensing? Uh, what's getting a big reaction? That's how Stan Lee ended up becoming such a big part of it. That really did happen. But I probably would not have like 
put as much emphasis on it if I hadn't been telling it to people so that I knew that that was one of the things that people found really interesting about the story. So I think that the real secret was that as I was writing it, I was thinking about it as a true story. You know, all of the things that are interesting in the book are either true or slightly less interesting versions of the truth. Because so many of the things in her life are so wild and bizarre that they literally, we did not even have room for them. Um, For example, her literally burning her comics um, to destroy all evidence that she ever worked in comics. That's just, it stretches the imagination to think that a real human person would do that. But she did. And that's not in the book because it's too, too out there. Stranger than fiction. Right, right. (laughs) I was going to say one of those moments where you just go... Not realistic. Yeah. Can we go ahead and switch it over? You know, it's like if you're writing fiction, you're like, mm, nobody is going to buy that. Right, exactly. <laughs> like it just it just doesn't feel like that's believable. And in a, in a book where part of the conceit is that this isn't 100% true, if you have something that doesn't feel 100% true, you have to lose it, unfortunately. I think what I was going for was like an emotional truth more than anything else. Um, and a story where once you were done with the book, if you were to tell someone what happened in the story or what happened in the book, you would be telling a true story. So like all of the dialogue, there's no way that we could have possibly known what these conversations were actually like, um, except for probably her therapy sessions. But like just her talking to like her love interests and whatever, you know, that's we're going to have to make that up just based on the kind of book this is. Personally, I don't think that comics are the right medium for an all-true biography. It just seems like kind of a waste to me. It's, it seems like a misapplication of the medium. If you are doing a comic book and everything in it is 100% true, you're not telling a story. The art isn't going to be true. I don't know. I just, I feel so weird about comics biographies that are so dedicated to being like the definitive biography because I don't think you ever will be. So I think that your job as someone who's working on a comic is to tell a story that is as true as possible, if not like literally true, then like emotionally true. You know, does that make sense? Definitely. And I, and I, you know, I think something that is, I'm such a fucking nerd. I'm always trying to convince people that like anything written is fictionalized. Yeah. To some degree, because if you're taking something that is unquantifiable being alive, right? It is. What are my motivations, motherfucker? I don't know what my motivations are. I don't know why I do the shit I do. I try to learn, but it's a lot of just like, why would someone do that when I think about being younger, when I think about what I ate last night? Like, why would someone do that? You know what? I don't know. I just did it in the moment. Right. And the reason I ate what I ate last night was because it was delicious. So <laughs> what, what did you what. eat last night? Now, now we it have was, to know. It was pad thai. Sarah got uh, me on a pad thai kick because I've had a sinus infection. I've been trying to eat a lot of really spicy food to try and like get the sinuses moving. Mm. So I had uh, pad thai and then a real hot curry. It was delicious. Hell yeah, you did. Ooh, that sounds yeah, awesome. Literally, you texted me, Sarah, and I was like, hey, JB, can we have pad thai? <laughs> I'm like, pad thai, pad thai, pad, pad thai. thai. I'm over here literally being the pad thai spokesperson because I'm just (laughs) like, hey, eat this. It's so good. (laughs) Here's what's up because I live like three blocks away from a place that makes beautiful, spicy, vegan pad thai, everything that I want it to be. There's days where I'm just like, if I don't go eat this pad thai, nobody wants to be around me. I'm just going to (laughs) go eat this pad thai. Like I'm in a bad mood. I'm going to go eat this pad thai, have my face burned off by the spice. And then I have a new face. I become a new person Mm -hmm. who's not (laughs) cranky, bad mood. 
It also sounds like another one of your horror stories you wrote. So hmm. that does sound a lot like one of my stories. Yeah. They're all based on reality. Yeah. And and that's that's what I think is again the truth of any any art is that some of it's pulling from reality. Because fiction that doesn't pull from some emotional well that we share or that is true, like you're saying, Grace, people don't enjoy it as much. And memoir, (laughs) autobiography, (laughs) biography, like that's all fictionalization. You don't know which shoe the guy put on first. You don't know what words they exactly used. Even if you do have recordings, you know, that would be a miracle. And not necessarily like, again, the truth, what someone's saying. So I think what's fascinating is what is truth, right? Like that's a big question we have to ask around writing and telling stories. And I I love the way you talked about finding emotional truth. I think that's a really great compass for people when thinking about how we we recount true or true-ish things. Yeah. I mean, I I think of this book as kind of like a biopic, you know, like you you wouldn't see a movie and expect it to be a documentary. I try really hard not to like shit talk anyone's work, but I'm going to shit talk Imitation Game a little bit here. Imitation Game was like my greatest fear in writing this book because while I think that there are moments in that movie that are really well done, and I think the acting is great, and I don't even know that much about Alan Turing, they portray him as this like deeply autistic man, and there's no evidence that that's true. So I can't really trust anything that this movie is telling me about what this experience must have been like. I I feel like they're so focused on making it like a deep and interesting character that they just completely forgot that there was like a real human who really experienced these things happening at the center of their story, you know? The homophobia that he experienced is kind of NBD in that movie, right? Right, right, which is so bizarre because that's like one of the more interesting parts of that story. And kind of definitely dictated how things went for him. Right, especially (laughs) at the end there, folks. Come on. (laughs) Yeah, that's the issue with it, though. So please go on, because I think that's so interesting. And I was just thinking about that, how it's like when you take the homophobia out of his life, or, you know, at least you mute it to the extent that it was muted in that film, that's just one element where you look at it and you go, wow, that doesn't quite work. Because I know that that played such a major role in every moment of his life, because I live in 2022 And, you know, homophobia plays a huge role in my life, right? So you're kind of like looking at this being like, so... Right. I I just, I don't know that you can find an emotional truth when you start cutting things like that out, you know? Right. To bring it back to what we were talking about before, if you're trying to take a, a look at a historical figure who had a great impact, I think that you owe it to yourself and to your audience to like take all of the really hard, complicated components and make sure they're in there and playing some kind of a role in your understanding of who this person was. But that also you don't have to go so hard on it, which is another thing that happens in this book where you just, I feel like you're really good at pulling back at the parts where I'm like, it would just be too much at this point, right? Where it's just like, Clearly, we're seeing, you know, fairly extreme anti-Semitism from her, but we don't necessarily need to see her say a slur. We don't necessarily need to... We had, like, a long, long conversation about every instance of anti-Semitism in this book. We had multiple people advising us on it. Honestly, truly, we spent longer on that component of it than I spent on writing the rest of the script because 
we wanted to do such a good job and felt like it was really important to represent these views without being like alarming to readers, you know? Right. And that's what the, the author's note at the beginning is for, to make sure that people... And I was going to say, <laughs> I loved that author's note. I thought it was such an important foot to start reading the book on. And I wanted to know about how you wrote that and what you thought was most important to highlight there. Well, I did a lot of reading, mostly, um, and spent a long time thinking about what I wanted people to get out of the book. Um, and I think what I do want people to get out of the book is I want them to get a, a good, entertaining story. And I, I feel like we've succeeded in that. And I want them to have a, a more nuanced view of this person. So I don't know. I put a lot of care into it. And I, it makes me feel really, really pleased to hear that it seems like it's really working for people and started the book out right, you know? It feels like such a, a fair way to address the reader, too. I think there could have been like a aha gotcha way of doing it where you're like, let me sell you this lesbian who's amazing. And if you don't know the whole story of Patricia Highsmith, you wouldn't know this. And then, aha, oh, look, she's she's evil a little bit here. Look, oh, I gotcha. Gotcha. You wanted a good one and I gotcha. And I think instead you invite us to grapple with all the pieces of her, the real person who lived and wrote these huge cultural iconic books. And it's like that conversation is necessary because people who are queer, who are not good people, are part of our history as well. And we have to live with both those things. And that doesn't mean that there's some pretty moral at the end of every story about LGBTQ plus people, you know? It felt so much like an invitation to really sit with the uncomfortable parts. Couldn't have said it any better myself. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> I want people that, to think about things in a nuanced way, including the subject of this book, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Every time I think about Patricia Highsmith, I feel like I go on this journey. So I always appreciate it. I also loved the intro to the book because I was like, how are you going to do a Patricia Highsmith story? You know, like that was kind of something where I was like, oh, interesting. Right. You know, <laughs> like as much as I think what, uh, you know, truly famously terrible person and you just go you know there is so many complexities in that and the intro definitely is like hey <laughs> you know get complex with us like we're trying to kind of think around this and understand a little bit but mostly not in any way of justifying in a way of how does this fit into our lives going forward right because she's so huge of a cultural icon in a way that you can't necessarily escape that influence you could be like well i'm not going to read this but you know there's still like 7 billion <laughs> like you know it's like still just it permeated the culture so much right even if you avoid her how are you going to avoid you know the hundreds of people who are trying to imitate her you know and what does that mean if they're building their books on this foundation you know So something that I love about this book is that do we think she would hate that it's a graphic novel? <laughs> <laughs> yes, because you, you kept saying it. I was like, there's no way Grace is putting this in as anything but, hey, Patricia. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like definitely meant to be like a no That meta narrative is so funny and fun and the tension of being like... <laughs> wow, this person hates me and I'm reading 
about this person I don't particularly like in this format she would hate that I love. It's really interesting, the tension there. I thought that you did such a clever job with that. And yeah, I was curious, like, what do we get from that meta narrative? You know, it's it's the tension that we get to feel with the author, which I think is important. And then there's there's something I haven't quite cracked where I'm like, why is this so damn clever and funny and insightful? Well, I think part of it is that she deserves it. Um, and it's also like proving her wrong in a way where she assumed that this was a lowbrow medium that nothing good could ever come from. And it's like, well, suck on that, Pat, you know, I'll prove you wrong right now. (laughs) (laughs) I worked really hard to get this moment in there. And I think that it is pretty seamless. Um, but I wanted there to be a moment where she insults people who read comic books, kind of like to your face as a reader so that you would know how she feels about you personally which is that she thinks you're illiterate and very stupid. Thinking about the audience experience, I wanted that moment to be in there. A more broad answer to this question is that I, when I approach any project, and I am really lucky in that Hannah Templer, who did the art on this book, and it, I, we're not exaggerating, it is like unbelievably beautiful. Um, Hannah also takes this approach, which is that every, every book you have to think about why this needs to be a comic and not something else. You know, we're, we're holding a comics hammer. It's really easy to see every story as a comics nail, but that's not true. Um, so in thinking about this story, it feels like the kind of story that could only be a comic. And we found a lot of ways to make sure that that was the case, like with the actual storytelling. Yes. I want to talk a little bit about this, right? Because, uh, okay, first of all, yes, the artwork in this, incredible. And also there is the fact of, I don't see how this could be you know, just a movie biopic, I'm sure that there will be biopics at some point, but there'll be a completely different realm because there's those scenes where her haunted dreams and the passage of time, I think is communicated so well in this comic in a way that you could never, right? I feel like in movies you can go, we're in this scene and now we're in this scene, but this gives you in between times that I think I just don't know how else it could have been portrayed other than in these comics and how there's kind of this cishet demon (laughs) in a way that's haunting her. There's the scene where she sees, you know, Carol, basically, and she is so compelled by Carol and just so obsessed with her and wants only to talk to her and everything, everything that we know of Therese, right? You know, like, it is just like completely into her in a way that can't be connected to anything else and then you see kind of in her dream sequences and in her you know the things that are tormenting her given life with this beautiful art there's whole multi-page segments where it's and then it's all of this weird kind of heteronormative kind of stuff happening all around and it's while she's like yeah I slept with this guy 26 times that's a lot of times or something like that and I just think that the way that visually it comes across yeah you would have a really hard time communicating that I think that if another artist did this it would look totally different you know I think that there's something very specific about the collaboration on those scenes that I thought uh just stood out so much right yeah I mean one of the things that I thought made this a comic story specifically was the fact that comics can go so internal especially because Pat this character Pat is someone who is so guarded in some ways, in some ways very guarded, in some ways not guarded at all. But I thought that it was important 
for our understanding of her that we are able to go inside of her brain and see what exactly she's dealing with. And in some cases, what exactly she's thinking about. And, you know, Hannah figured that out. I mean, she, she just understood it immediately. Like the, the importance of the dreams and the little thought bubbles, which someone also described recently to me as dreams. And I thought that was interesting. They're ways of getting to know Pat in a way that the other characters don't necessarily know her. And I, I think that's really particular to comics. I mean, I think uh, any adaptation of this is going to require some major thinking about how to get over that issue, because that's something that's so particular to comics. And then it becomes something else. Like, it's a right, totally exactly. different story. It's, it's, just, it's just a different, it's just different. It's not necessarily worse. It's just, it would be very different, you know? I tell you what, this comic is awesome. <laughs> I liked it a lot. And I've, I hope that everybody understands how conflicting of a character from all of the discussion that we've had because she really is and it's gonna probably be something that I'm puzzling about you know 20 30 probably for the rest of my life you know down the line where I'm just like what was that about Pat like what what (laughs) yeah especially now that I'm gonna read her diaries right I'm probably gonna be so conflicted but also just like turn the page turn the page they're they're awesome you're gonna you're gonna love them Decoded. Decoded. I heard a rumor that something called Decoded was just around the corner. Decoded. Decoded. (laughs) (laughs) We are coming back for the third year in a row with our extremely cool, very dear and near to my heart, speculative anthology of all LGBTQ stories by queer and trans authors. Decoded. It is called Decoded Pride. It's at decodedpride.com. And you can pick up a subscription today for only $14.99. Or if you go to any of our social media sites on Instagram or Twitter at Bitches on Comics, or if you follow us on Patreon or support us over on Patreon, we have discount codes already all plugged in for you and you can get it for even cheaper. So go check those out. But right now you can get it for $14.99 at decodedpride.com. And Sarah, what is Decoded? What are people going to get? They get 30 stories that can be any kind of stories, really, other than literary fiction. (laughs) We mostly just do queer speculative fiction. You have stories of comic books. You have stories of horror stories. You have fantasy stories, science (laughs) fiction, all of the things. You know what speculative fiction is. I don't have to tell you. Stuff that's just... Even just too hard to define. Simply undefinable. Genre bending. Trippy. Yes. Yeah, I'm really excited this year. The the stories, I mean, they're they're great every year. And if you haven't bought a subscription to issue one or issue two, you can do so right now (laughs) over at, guess what, (laughs) decodedpride.com. Please go get a subscription. I think it's just really neat. It's awesome to read queer and trans people's stories that are the ones they want to tell because they know they can take risks with us. And I, you know, I've really seen that pay off and I'm delighted. I can't wait for people to start seeing these. What's especially cool is that every story that is not a comic has a piece of art that accompanies it. In almost every instance, that art is made by our very own Sarah Century. And in one instance, made by the artist who wrote the story as well, which is very cool. But Sarah, you know, what, what do you enjoy about making the art for Dakota? Oh, I like drawing pictures. 
<laughs> I do, and I have for a long time. I think that it's really fun because it makes me examine the stories and think about them in a different way. It makes me get creative because normally when you read a story, you're just thinking about what you thought about it overall. I'll engage with stories like that usually. Whenever you're doing the art, it means you really have to look back over it and back over it and engage with it in a way that you haven't before, which... Yeah, you don't have to do it with every story that you read in your life, but it's really fun whenever you do it for Decoded, as I do. <laughs> oh, that sounds amazing. I love that. It's pretty neat. Well, we hope you'll come support us and all of the amazing creators we're getting to publish this year. We are absolutely ecstatic. Again, join us at decodedpride.com. Dot com. Because Jenny Schechter was my favorite on the L word. Oh, you know, what, like you're just going to like be so I cannot obsessed. believe that we have been talking this entire time with someone whose favorite character was Jenny Schechter. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this interview is over. <laughs> when Sarah says favorite, I think it's like an asterisk because like for Sarah, it's like Sarah loves to be called out. <laughs> Sarah cherishes the opportunity to be shown how farcical she is. And that is why I love her. And we talk all the time about how like when fucking Jenny is like, and the woman who could not speak, but she spoke the language of, of the, the manatee. manatee. <laughs> Sarah has written a story like that. I have definitely written a story like that. It's like, you know, I love to hate the L word. And then sometimes the L word's like, bitch, I know you. And I'm like, God yeah. damn it, you do. I mean, it nailed like the sport lesbian with Dana, oh, right? Yeah. Oh, you know, like God. the unbothered sport lesbian. It nailed the obsessed <laughs> Alice. I was going to say the like the totally out of control bisexual. I was like, God damn it. <laughs> Why are you showing me on screen? We all hate the L word because the <laughs> L word shows at least one person where you're just like, oh, you're dragging me. And like, I was like 18 the first time I watched it. So I wasn't even a Ginny Schechter yet. But I was like, it was like a pre-drag of who like I would later, you're just like, oh no. <laughs> you had a vision of yourself in the future. This is a terrible moment for me, Ginny Schechter, everybody. When she went to that writing class, I was like, oh, damn, I think I've been exactly her in a writing class. Ugh, her interactions with, like, cringe. old professors or whatever. Yeah, it's all, like, everything about her is the most cringe thing in the world. But then there's those moments where she's, like, throwing things on the table, being like, I don't need to hear this shit. <laughs> I'm just like, I kind of like you. But, but it's... <laughs> In the same way that you kind of like, but you know what? I'll leave. It's okay. <laughs> I, I do really like I that she's your favorite character and you just described her as someone you kind of like. I think that's really and, good. It's like she's my favorite and also completely cringe, right? And I also think, too, that whenever I'm thinking about this kind of stuff, it's like why I would read Patricia Highsmith's diaries is because, like, I'm like, you're so, so scandalous in a way that I am not. I live with six pets. I hang out by myself a lot. Yeah. You're, you're like a rabbit person, you know? I'm a rabbit person, you know, like, I don't know anything about, like, whatever, like, <laughs> I didn't write Price of Salt. I don't know anything about, like, you know, dating older rich ladies who are married, which, I mean, like, call me and everything. But, like, also, you know, I don't know. <laughs> Wait, did you know that life. Carol in the book is supposed to be, like, 
she's like 32 or something. It's like, it's like so offensive to me. I, it's hilarious. Older. <laughs> like older. I'm 12. Right. And, <laughs> but it's like, but that's the thing is in the movie too. I remember like there was some people who were just like age gap problems or something. And it's like, but Mara Rooney is like 30 in this. Right. And <laughs> like, so first of all, she's, she's grown, real grown. It's fine. But then also Kate Blanchett's only like 44 or something during the filming of this movie. So I was like, well, it's a 14 year age gap, but like also they're both very grown. And then also if you look at all of the other age gaps in cinematic history, right. <laughs> like that are like, the like not lesbians. <laughs> I mean, on a regular basis, I'll be watching just some garbage ass TV or film. And I'll be like, let me look up the age of this actor who is a dude and this actor mm -hmm. who is a woman. And let's just see. And it's honestly never less than 14 years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, why is it that we're upset when it's the lesbians? Hmm. I wonder. <laughs> it's a mystery. I sure wonder. I always think of um, Singing in the Rain. I've looked it up just now where Gene Kelly is 40 and Debbie Reynolds was 19. You know? Yeah. And that's not what the movie is about at all. But it is at like, all. I, don't, I don't know about that one, gang. Totally. So I was going to ask you, too, what your favorite character in Carol is. Because my Ooh. favorite character is not Therese or Carol. But I feel like I personally relate the most to Abby. Oh, yeah. Abby, like Abby. Abby is definitely, like, the unsung hero in Carol. Shows up in that, like, convertible just being like, what's up? Right, right. She's just, like, <laughs> hanging around in the background watching her friend make all of these terrible, terrible decisions. And she's just like, I mean, I guess it's your life, but like, okay. She's like, that's cool, but we're like cool exes. She's like, I'm just here. I'm going to try and get laid, but like, you know, it's cool if it doesn't work out. And like, you know what? This is actually a great segue to, which is my favorite character in Imagine Me and You. Yes. Which is, yes! Um, <laughs> which is uh, <laughs> Luce's friend. I do not even remember her name. Yeah, she's just like this, just like her friend. She's in like one scene, like two scenes maybe. And she's just there mm -hmm. to like be another lesbian who's around. And I just feel like there have been so many she's times She's like, you where, should go for it. Right, there are so many times where that's been me, you know? She's not just heterosexual. <laughs> she's Bobby heterosexual. Right? Exactly. <laughs> you get it. That. Oh my God. There's a deleted Let scene where, um, where Luce is picking her up from the hospital because she hit on somebody's girlfriend and got punched in the face. And I was like, wow, I like you a lot that you would try that anyway and just like eat that punch for this girl. Sure. Good for you. In a chill way. <laughs> Not in a Pat Highsmith oh, right. way, but in a chill right, way. Right. She's just like, what's up? I <laughs> I like that character a lot too. Also, I mean, Lena, right? Like, I mean, oh, come on. The like, I mean, Ooh. what are we doing here? I just, I, I'm like, mm. it's one of those people where sometimes you're just like, hey, could you tone it down? Because the rest of us just showed up with our regular selves. <laughs> like, I am literally resting my head on my microphone right now because I'm so overwhelmed. Those pants, those lesbian ass pants that she wears. Okay, the pants in that movie, I recently rewatched it. And if they could release a new version where they have CGI different pants on these people, <laughs> it would be like at least a 50% better movie, I think. The pants are so much. It, they're just so that time in, in life, yes. right? Like when it was just like, why did we need to see below everyone's belly button? I don't know, but we like, really did for some reason. We, it was a legal requirement. <laughs> but also, isn't that the thing where you're like, okay, speaking as a lesbian, never wore those pants. Um, this is unrealistic. <laughs> I thought that this was a biopic. <laughs> 
<laughs> they have not captured the emotional truth of the, the lesbian experience with those pants. <laughs> oh, man. I love that movie. Isn't it so good? So if anybody wants to go check this movie out, feel free to text us. We, yes. <laughs> Listeners, let's talk about Imagine Me and You. I mean, everybody is so beautiful in that movie. It's a beautiful love story. Every single line of dialogue, I just want to get tattooed to my body. Matthew Good is like so adorable. I was just going to say, everyone really brings their A-game in it. And it's just like a solid rom-com from beginning to end, you know? I was dunking on rom-coms before, but like, man, if we're going to have one like very formulaic rom-com, I'm glad it's this one. It's so solid. Oh, and the climax, imagine me and you. I do. No. Oh, oh, I can't. I can't imagine <laughs> I can just ball my eyes out. It's too <laughs> much. Well, I'm glad we got to imagine you. I was going to die if we didn't. <laughs> I hope that there's a graphic novel adaptation of Imagine Me and You. Oh, honestly, I would but... definitely do it. If they asked me, I would do it. Commissions. Let's do it. <laughs> I'm overwhelmed by that idea. I'm so excited. <laughs> I want it now. <laughs> I'm also like, we could talk about Imagine Me and You for literally the rest of our lives, probably. I feel like yeah. this call would truly never end. If you're just like, <laughs> what about Lena's eyebrows? Oh, Let's just talk about that for a little while. And then what about her cheekbones? This is how people end up doing <laughs> podcasts about just one single movie. <laughs> yeah. I haven't listened to anyone that does that, but I hope to someday. <laughs> I just, every time I see it, it's always somebody being like, we're doing Kid- Citizen Kane by the minute. And I'm like, I don't need to. I don't need to do a single Orson Welles movie by the minute. No. Um, I would do, I would do Imagine Me and You. <laughs> I definitely misunderstood the concept. Like the first time someone shared one, I was like, oh, it's like a minute long episode. I would listen to this. <laughs> And then I was like, wait a goddamn minute. You're talking about one minute for the entire episode? I don't have that in me. Um, But yeah. God, imagine me and you. I wrote a whole essay about that one. I was like... (laughs) Wait, when did you write that? Uh, I think it was like right when we first became friends. I'll send it to y'all. Yeah, Um, send it over. Yeah, and I'll send the the one about... I care a lot, too. And you know what, folks? I'll put them in the show notes as well. Have a little read. Have a little reedy, read, read. We write all the time. In fact, we're all writers. <laughs> That's the spoiler at the end of the episode. But <laughs> Oops, all writers. Oopsie daisy. I was going to ask a couple of things because you've done a ton of stuff. Once again, I had no idea about the Lois Lane and there's been a lot of other stuff, but I was going to talk about Bravest Warriors just for a hot second. Oh, sure. Because yeah. I've never seen this, but I looked up, I was just like, crazy, this, like on the, <laughs> on Google and Google tells me that you did animated series episodes. So I would love to hear more about that. And because uh, I'm going to watch it very shortly after we get off this call, but I would like to know about it because I had never heard of it. Well, Okay. Some of the episodes are kind of hard to track down because they were publishing it on this like very random streaming website. But one of the ones I, at least one of the ones I worked on is free to watch on YouTube. It's like Catbug Detective, which is like, if you looked at all of the Bravest Warriors episodes and were like, which one did Grace write? You'd be like, oh, the Catbug Detective one, surely. It was a really very positive experience. I loved it. Um, I would happily, happily write more for animation. Um, it's very, very rewarding, obviously. It was kind of a unique experience, though, because um, they didn't have a writer's room and all of us were just hired individually to write episodes. Um, So I would just 
pitched a bunch of ideas and they said, do that one. And I said, okay. And then I did it. And they were like, great, here's some notes. And then I fixed it. And they were like, great, we're going to go make this now. I said, okay. <laughs> and then they're like, it's done. And that was kind of it, you know? <laughs> I met some really, really, like the people that I worked with were great. But it was it was very, very different from most animation experiences. Hmm. Yeah, and I was going to ask too if there was kind of, um, you know, we were just talking about how specifics comics are. And I see, I mean, I have been watching, of course, animation for a very long time. So I was wondering if there was kind of a similar approach with this. Was it kind of something where you went, oh, this is going to be you know, obviously visual, but also very dynamic, right? Yeah, yes. It's, it's, it's a very similar experience, but different in key ways. It's exactly what you've articulated there. Because when, you, when you're writing a comic, you get so good at thinking from like big moment to big moment. But Bravest Warriors especially, because it's basically a team of like space superheroes. Um, it's like real silly, kind of like, it's like Adventure Time adjacent. But it's like the, the movement is such a big part of that. And having to remember, like, make the movements really heightened instead of just, like, the big, like, the big emotional moments heightened, you know? Um, it was interesting. I feel like, I genuinely, I feel like I learned a lot. I, I really liked it. My real writing background before I got into comics was theater. Um, and that's a totally different thought process when it comes to writing. But they're all connected in very key ways, you know? So I was, I felt prepared to do it. But it was, there was definitely a learning curve in that way. Mm-hmm. Super interesting. I'm so excited to check it out. Yeah, I think, I think you'll like it. It's really cute. He's got a little detective hat on. And Adventure Time is so cute. Right. So that was a good sell point. Nice. Okay, so I am very curious to see because as I was just mentioning, you have a ton of stuff that has already, you know, seen print or seen the air. Because we talked a little bit about Moonstruck as well, right? Yes. Yes, a little bit. Okay. Where can you get Moonstruck? Is that... That's around. Yeah. Cool. It's <laughs> <laughs> around. I wherever stick wherever around find, it. Uh, Moonstruck is sold. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I got it exactly. uh, in my inbox, and so it was pretty sweet. Um, it's around. It's just kind of like in the ether. You wish for it, and then it appears. <laughs> <laughs> so... so um, Obviously, I'm sure that there's stuff that, you know, mediums you haven't worked in that you would love to, et cetera, et cetera. But what do you have that's coming up around the bend that we can look forward to that you can talk well, about? See, yeah, that's, <laughs> like, that's like the important little clause there, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> well, some things I can't talk about, unfortunately. I know I was just in an editor's inbox being like, can I? Uh, and they were like, mm no no you can't so <laughs> well you'll have to come back when you can right right yeah um so I have this ongoing project and I have done this in a totally ass backwards way so it's it's been really ongoing but so in pre-pandemic spring of 2019 I saw 10 different high school productions of Mamma Mia <laughs> right it was a wild wild trip so I'm steadily working to to get that like documentary comic done about that experience. I think that's literally the only thing I can talk about. The only reason I can talk about that is because I decided to write the whole thing before I sold it to anyone. So the Mamma Mia comic is coming eventually. (laughs) What? Yeah. Because you know what? Mamma Mia is a really good song. I mean, the whole show... I I've, I feel like I was a little like Stockholm syndrome into it because you get to like the seventh one and you're like, here we go again. 
you know? <laughs> but I, it, you're like, yeah, my. here we go again. <laughs> right. How could you forget her? Exactly. Check it out. Yeah. It genuinely did change my life in some very, very key ways. So <laughs> <laughs> there's a guy on YouTube who plays ABBA covers on organ, a giant pipe organ that's, that's in a church. And this random guy in Sussex, England. <laughs> I am his biggest fan. I watch these videos all of the time. Well, you'll have to you'll have to send send me one. Put them in the show notes. <laughs> Don't even worry. <laughs> Don't even worry. I'm on top of nice. that. And I have I know nothing about this person. <laughs> so, <laughs> just to be clear, it just came up at one point on YouTube. And I was like, this rule. See, the algorithm has was you like, pegged. They were like, I, I don't does. know what it, it is. Like, but uh, I like know this, one. <laughs> this, this specific person is going to love pipe organ ABBA. <laughs> <laughs> they were right. So, Grace, if folks want to learn more about you and your work, where are the best places to find that online? Well, my website is ohheygraceellis.com, and my Twitter handle is Grace C. Ellis. That's Grace, and then the letter C as in comics, Ellis. Is your middle name comics? That's why I, I like to tell people, yes. <laughs> no, it's, it's Catherine, but yes, it's comics. Isn't that fun? <laughs> Perfect. How, how, did you, how did your parents know? They just they could sense it, you know. They were like, you know what? This kid is going to be about comics. I love it. I love it. Uh, we will also, listeners, if you didn't have a pen out, don't worry. We will put Grace's website and handle on Twitter in the show notes, as well as Sarah's great article about I Care A Lot and my own, I think, great article about Imagine Me and You and how it changed my life to see queer women just like happy and in love so uh yeah this has been amazing grace you're so cool ah stop no you guys are cool this was so fun you're now part of the bitches family Ah, can't leave yes you have to come back to us with your next project i will i will i think you'll be really excited about them too so i'm i'm stoked i'm stoked yay same (laughs) (laughs) thank you for being here grace it really has been just an absolute delight and thank you for bringing such complex and uh interesting topics for us to talk about it's always fun to talk about queer characters and and uh, figures and what it means to show them again i'm coming back to the same word unflinchingly so thank you so much for this time well thank you for having me and thank you for uh, providing space to talk about hard things you know yeah it's important right Uh, My pleasure. Sarah, thank you, as always, for being a ding-dang delight and for making the decisions I cannot make. And Kate, thank you for making us sound like heavenly angels. And thank you, Katie, for doing our wonderful soundtrack that is so good. Every time I hear the Bitches on Comics music start up, I'm always like, oh, yeah. (laughs) Yep, you rule, Katie. We are very lucky to have you. And you listeners, we are always grateful for you. Uh, go ahead and give us five stars because you're here, right? You got to love it. Go click. You can little... do that on Spotify, I'm told now. Yeah, you click little dots, then you click some stars, make it five. I them. gave us five stars. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, five stars rated, reviewed. I went to give us five stars and it was like, don't you want to listen to an episode? You want to listen to it first. And I was like, what's your problem? I've listened to all the episodes. No, oh, check it right, out. I think you'd I really like it. Them. Yeah. <laughs> No, I think you'd like it. Oh, you yeah. should check this podcast out. Um, What's it called again? Um, it has like the the people in it. Um, they're talking about like mm, oh, books with know. pictures. Uh, 
Well, they had Grace Ellis on one time, so <laughs> it seems like a pretty good podcast. <laughs> and that's that. Thank you for listening to Bitches on Comics. We are a bi-weekly podcast where we talk to your favorite comics and pop culture creators and critics about what matters to them in comics and pop culture, as you might have guessed. You can follow us on Twitter at, at @bitchesoncomics and on Instagram at, at @bitchesoncomics. Our website is brace yourself, bitchesoncomics.com. If you go there, you can listen to any of our episodes and we've got other shit that we put on tabs. I don't remember what it is. I am in charge of updating the website, however, so good luck. <laughs> Thanks for the heads up. I'll go to this website now. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com, and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor, and you can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at se underscore Fleenor. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. Hey, it's Mae Whitman, and I play Frankie in the new Realm podcast, The Sisters. The Sisters is about a museum curator of medical oddities who investigates the origins of a mutated skeleton with two layers of bones. Seven ribs are completely fused. And you have no idea where this came from? No. She was sent here anonymously. Uh uh-uh, Not she. They, maybe? Wait. I've never seen anything like this. Soon, she uncovers an extraordinary mystery that connects her present with one family's tragic past in hauntingly dangerous ways. My grandfather was a journalist back in the 60s and 70s. He specialized in strange stories. Who are they? How are they connected to the skeleton? Play the tape. You'll see. Listen to The Sisters wherever you get your podcasts. We dream about it. We both dream about it. How often? Every night.